Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Brad. And my name's Sarah. Before we jump into this week's topic, we want to say thank you for listening, especially to those of you who have left a review on iTunes or have stopped by at either Carter House or Carton to see Brother Eye. Yeah, we uh, just a few days ago, I was giving, I was preparing to give a tour over at Carter House and a woman walked in and it was funny because our other female coworker was sitting next to me and when she walked in, she said, are you Sarah? And I, she said no. And I was like, and, and when she heard my voice, she said, wait, you're Brad. I recognize your voice. And it was just a fun moment. She's like, I've heard your voice on the podcast before. Yes. Apparently, we have pretty distinctive voices. That's definitely true. So thank you for coming to visit and for leaving reviews. This week, we are going to cover the life of Francis Watkins Carter, who was a Confederate soldier and whose life, I think, in many ways exemplifies the story of so many young men who got caught up in the wave of American history and went off to war, but who then struggled to find a place to call home afterwards. This episode sort of serves as a sequel to our earlier episode, Mint Julep, about Captain Todd Carter, who was killed at the Battle of Franklin. And we want to continue the story of the three Carter sons who were alive during the time of the Civil War. And this week, we're going to cover the youngest, Francis Watkins Carter. This is another episode that deals with a character that we discuss on a daily basis while giving tours of the Carter house. But it's interesting because out of the three Carter brothers those being Moscow, Francis, and Todd, Francis' story is often one that receives the least amount of attention. And this is for one simple reason. He was not present during the Battle of Franklin. And we'll get to why in just a little bit. Francis Watkins Carter was born on November 30th, 1842 in Franklin, Tennessee, to Fountain Branch Carter and his wife, Mary Atkinson Carter. He was the 11th of 12 children, and his family referred to him as Watt, a shortened version of his middle name, when he was a child. Uh, later in life, he's simply known as Frank. And I love it because they had they had 12 kids, and it seems like they kind of they ran out of names by the last two because they're both named Francis, boy Francis and then girls Francis. And Francis Watkins, the boy Francis, his little sister uh, was known as Fanny. And I just love that their last two kids are Wad and Fanny. They're just perfect little little sibling nicknames. I know. The Carters educated their children. And like we discussed in the Mint Julep podcast, Todd was an attorney by the age of 20. And we also have a diploma from one of their other daughters. Her name was Mary Alice uh, on display at the Carter house. And Francis was no exception. There's a letter from Fountain Branch Carter, his father, dated May 29th, 1855, in which he wrote that Theodric is nearly grown, perfectly steady, learns very fast, and understands what he reads better than any boy ever saw. Frank, or Francis, also is learning well, but poor Fanny, the youngest sister, is nearly grown and don't learn anything but making dolls. There is an old family story that Francis Carter was an adventurous young boy, and in the years before the Civil War, he joined William Walker in his filibustering attempts to take over Nicaragua to extend slavery further south. And you'll remember that we talked about Walker's story a few episodes back. I do want to stress that this is a rumor, which means there's no concrete evidence for it. But one source for this rumor is Rosa Lee Carter, who was Francis's great niece. She wrote a booklet about her family in which she said that perhaps love of adventure was an inborn trait for Francis Watkins, according to family tradition, ran away from home to join William Walker, the filibuster, in Nicaragua. And it's hard to know 
exactly what to make of this story. Is it possible? Sure, I guess. William Walker did recruit youths, and he was filibustering in Central America up until late 1860. So maybe a young Francis Watkins snuck off when he was 15 or 16 to join on in the adventure. But is it likely? No, probably not. Francis traveled extensively in South America after the Civil War, which we'll talk more about in just a few minutes. It's possible that over the years, the stories of Francis's childhood adventures were conflated or confused with stories from his later life. A true story, though, is that Francis enlisted in the Confederate Army as soon as he possibly could. And one of the reasons that makes Francis and honestly the rest of the Carters so interesting is because they demonstrate like how the Civil War and the politics surrounding it could affect different generations in different ways. It's easy to think that everybody in the North thought one way, you know, everybody in the South thought a different way. But think about the political issues today. And then think about how your own family and then ask yourself if everyone agrees. And there's probably a good chance, if your family's normal, that they don't. I'll oftentimes say that on my house tours when I'm talking about the years before the war and the buildup to secession. I usually say, think about your own family and does everybody agree? And it's, if there's families in the group, there's almost always somebody who turns and gives a dirty look to somebody else. So you can tell, like, not everybody agrees today. Not everybody agreed back then. And this was definitely true with the Carters. A guy like Fountain Branch Carter, who's in his 60s by the time of the war, a lot of guys that age were considered Jacksonian Democrats, guys who believed in slavery. The Carters did own 28 slaves, but who also believed in the Union, the importance of staying united. You have to remember that for a guy like Fountain Branch, Francis's dad, when he was a young boy, the country was not that old. And the idea of throwing this whole experiment away was unheard of. Yeah, plus lots of the men, the people, I should say, in Fountain Branch's generation, it was they're often their fathers, their grandfathers who fought in the American Revolution. They grew up hearing these stories of fighting for their freedom. And so talk of secession would ring to them almost like talk of of treason, of ignoring the sacrifices that perhaps their relatives fought for. The younger generation, though, boys in their late teens and early 20s, like Francis and Todd, were much more fired up about the war and were willing to go off to fight. Moscow, Todd, and Francis, all three of Fountain's living sons, enlisted in the Confederate Army. And Francis chose to list first. He enlisted on April 6, 1861, a few weeks before his two older brothers did, and he first enlisted in Company D of the 1st Tennessee Infantry. In June of 1861, he transferred to Company H of the 20th Tennessee Infantry, the unit which Todd and Moscow were assigned. In January of 1862, Francis fought in the Battle of Mill Springs, where his older brother Moscow was captured, and then in the Battle of Shiloh in April of 1862, in which Francis was shot through his right hand. The wound was severe enough that he was honorably discharged from the 20th Tennessee in August 15th, 1862. At this point, he could have just gone home, right? He was honorably discharged. He could have gone home and spent the rest of the war in Franklin, but that's not what he does. It's unknown what happened to Francis over the first few months after he's discharged, uh, but he does turn up in modern-day Oklahoma, where he enlists with the 34th Texas Cav in May of 1863. He fought with this regiment for about a year, when on May 18th, 1864, he was captured in the Battle of Yellow Bayou. He was then sent to prison in New Orleans, exchanged a few weeks later, and spent the latter portion of the war sick in a Louisiana hospital. So Francis was the one living Carter's son who was not present during the Battle of Franklin. We don't know exactly where he was at that point, 
But it's an interesting coincidence that the Battle of Franklin was fought on November 30th, 1864, which was Francis Carter's 22nd birthday. So that actually brings kind of a perspective that I never really thought about up until this exact moment, is that all this is going on. So that must have been in like Fountain Branch's back of the mind that, you know, not only are they experiencing some atrocities of war, but like, hey, my youngest son is turning 22 today. Oh, yeah, yeah. When the family's downstairs in the basement during the battle, we know he hadn't really had contact with Todd. We don't know the last he had heard from Francis. So not only going through this, but... Yeah, you're worried, you know, you're worried about your own family there, but he's probably thinking, hey, at least Francis isn't here. What's happening to him on his 22nd birthday? That brings us to the end of the Civil War. The war ends in the spring of 1865. And Francis, you got to imagine, he had dedicated four years of his early adulthood. He enlisted when he was 18. So four years of his early adulthood to a cause that had now fallen apart. And so what does a guy like Francis do who had dedicated so much of himself to war now that that war is over. Many former Confederates felt displaced or unwelcome in their former homes after the war and decided to head for greener pastures elsewhere. Some made their way to the West, to the frontier, and to California. Which Francis does, and we'll talk about that later. But tens of thousands decided to leave the country entirely and make their way to South America. Many of these former Confederates end up in Brazil and were known as Confederados, but a smaller percentage took up residence in other South American countries, oftentimes with land contracts from local governments. And this seems to be what Francis did. By the spring of 1868, Francis Watkins Carter had traveled to Venezuela, where he had obtained a land grant of 2,000 acres from the Venezuelan government. In a letter to his father, written on March 6, 1868, Francis spoke pretty positively of his experience there. He said, in my business with this government, I have really been more successful than I would have dared to anticipate in a matter of such magnitude and under so many difficulties. So at 25 years old, he's already a war veteran and a world traveler, but his time in Venezuela doesn't seem to last all that long. Francis was back home in less than two years. In January of 1870, Francis's older brother Moscow wrote in his journal, Frank returned home today after a three-year absence in Venezuela, South America. He has spent most of his manhood in roving about, but I hope he will, in the future, be satisfied to remain at home and devote his time and talents to some useful employment. He looks but little changed, except somewhat thinner in flesh and in the loss of some of his teeth. And I love this quote because I think it just adds so much, much depth to the Carter's brothers' relationships. Mm -hmm. It's really easy to interpret this quote at face value. You see Moscow saying how Frank's kind of immature. He just spends his time roving about. And maybe he, maybe he was. Maybe that's exactly what it was like. Yeah, but we can't take it out of context. We have to remember what Moscow was going through when he wrote this down in his journal. Yeah, Moscow was the older brother who came back home and he was taking care of the family farm. And Francis is the brother who left for adventure. And so it's it's also you can see how Moscow might be might be resentful of his little brother for leaving. Now we don't know that. There's no way to know that for sure, but I also don't think that you can take on face value when he says that he's wasting his time in South America. Maybe he was, or maybe that's just the older brother who's who's kind of jealous or resentful of his little brother for leaving. Yeah, and we don't want to go too much into Moscow now because we will definitely be doing a podcast on him 
in the near future, but it's it's good to just keep that in mind anytime you hear a quote about a specific person. You have to look at who the person was writing it. Francis made a return trip to Venezuela the next year, but he wasn't there long that time either. He had returned to Tennessee in early 1872 when Moscow wrote that Francis was back home from Venezuela. He left last March. His health is very bad, money all gone, and time wasted. Such is the result of his foolish and erratic course. I yet hope he will profit by his frequent and especially this last costly decision. Poor fellow, his capacity for doing good has been of little service. And Francis may have taken those words to heart, or maybe he just decided that his expeditions to Venezuela weren't worth continuing because he doesn't go back. And instead, he decides to move out west. He moved to Texas and married Mary Catherine Lockett, known as Molly, in 1874. According to the United States Federal Census, in 1880, Francis and Molly were living in Bosque County, Texas with their three children, Corinne, Fanny, and Kate, and Francis was employed as a mill worker. They had two more children in the coming years named Thomas and Ruth, and then they moved to California, where Francis jumped between different jobs. He worked for a time as a carpenter, and then as a rancher, and then as a superintendent of a mine. The Federal Census of 1900 lists Francis as working as a rancher in San Diego, living with Molly and their children. According to the census, Molly had given birth to eight total children, but only five were still living. And Francis really did become a well-respected citizen in San Diego. He appeared in the local newspaper several times. It seems it seems like he's now found his... It sounds like he found his community, and he's going to stay in the San Diego area for the rest of his life. Francis was an inventor. A 1906 newspaper indicated that Francis had received a patent for an automatic safety pulley block. Don't quite know what that is, <laughs> but it sounds interesting-ish. It's kind of fun to say. <laughs> automatic safety pulley block. Exactly. Probably, you know, pulley block. did something with pulleys and made them safer. Or made them blocks. I don't know. He was also a proponent of improving the water system in San Diego. Now, I don't want to get too much into the weeds in this, although we're big enough history nerds that when we were piecing together what his arguments were, we were getting really interested in it. Yes, we actually found out that this was one of the most exciting aspects of Francis's life. Right. But again, history nerds that we are. So... The water system in California was an issue in Francis's time, I mean, much like it can be today, because rainfall could not be relied upon to sustain agriculture. So for a few decades, citizens relied on a system of irrigation controlled by local groups of farmers. But this system could be abused and could lead to water shortages, especially in less populated areas, which is the areas that we think Francis was in. In the 1890s, Francis became a vocal proponent of changing the water system and putting the local government in charge. In 1896, Francis wrote a series of letters to a local newspaper called The Union, which was a major voice in this topic, urging the citizens to vote for the changes. One letter stated, Then I say, as one laborer to another, whom he is not ashamed to meet, either before or after the election, go to the polls and vote for your own interests and the interests of your families. Vote to give yourselves work and to put work into the hands of many who back it. He then continued, Therefore it lies in your hands this day to make this city and its land a city and land of peace, plenty, and prosperity. Or it lies upon them the curse of another ten years of water agitation and another decade of sagebrush, coyotes, and impoverished ranchers. And then this is my favorite part right here. Yes, my favorite too. 
Will you work like horses and vote like asses? Or will you meet us at the polls this day, freemen all, with your own prosperity and good of the city at heart and fearlessness that characterizes American citizens? And France's efforts really paid off. The next year, in 1897, California voted on an amendment that gave control of the irrigation system to the local governments. I find this stage of Francis's life to be interesting because I don't, I don't want to read too much into it, but it's easy to see that his life, especially post-Civil War, is kind of a search for meaning and for a place where he can make an impact. And while we can't say that it was just him alone that that got the local government or the local populace to, to vote to change the water system, it's something, it's a cause that he could fight in. You know, not to compare the cause of California water to the causes of the Civil War, but for him, I could see this as being a mission that he has finally found that he can dedicate himself to. And it paid off. And then he stays for the longest amount of time in California. He lives there for roughly 30 years. And Francis really does seem to be happy in California. He writes a letter on February 4th, 1920 when he's 71 years old, to his niece, Alice McPhail Nichols. And it kind of has that touch of reminiscence, but also I'm happy with where I am at the moment. It reads, We seem to have lost touch with our kindred, but we have not forgotten a simple one of you. Tennessee seems like a dream. I have been as long gone from its once familiar scenes. When Lena and Winder were here, it seemed like a resurrection to hear them tell of Franklin and its folks. So many gone hence. We are not likely to ever visit there again. As age prowls upon us, an opportunity's lesson. Heavens, what memories does all this invoke? Francis died just a few years later, on February 3rd, 1923, followed just a short time later by his wife Molly on March 26th. An obituary published in Franklin, Tennessee, his hometown, stated, Wad Carter, I love that they use his boyhood nickname there. And, well, that's how people remembered him by, I feel. Wad Carter, a brave Confederate soldier, left here 40 years ago for the West in the prime of his life, a very interesting type of the Confederate soldier and the old-time Southern gentleman so rapidly passing away. A little Confederate nostalgia there, though. <laughs> a little bit, but I mean, I think it's a fitting memorial to him. And it's, it's very nice. It's very nice. So that, that concludes Francis' story for now, but if you would like to learn more about the Carter family or the Battle of Franklin, or anything that we've talked about so far, please stop by for a tour at the Carter House, and then afterwards stop by at Carnton. Yeah, and who knows, you could get Brad or I to tell you a little bit more about the lives of the Carters in the house that they grew up in. We also would like to suggest, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast and would like to go beyond just leaving a review, if you could purchase one of our 10 and 20 t-shirts, they're available on our online store, which is store.boft.org. You can pick up one of those shirts. Just go to apparel and you'll see it there. If you would like to stay in contact with us, please follow us on Instagram at 10and20podcast, T-E-N-N-I-N-2-0 podcast, or shoot us an email at podcast at boft.org. I always love hearing from our listeners. If you have a suggestion of a topic that we should cover in the future, or you just want to reach out and say that you appreciate it, it gives us drive to keep going, I think. Yes, it does. Thank you so much for listening.